often I'll cook with young people who are pretty disengaged and disinterested and after you've shown them how to cook something they, they've changed their whole tune their whole attitude on life they get impassioned they they get excited this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep Australia is the world's largest island, a continent, and has just about every type of climatic condition. It means all manner of produce can grow all over the country, and the food of a region can be quite different to others. Caroline Taylor is a chef and the Swan Valley Food Ambassador and co-founder of Swan Valley Institution Taylor's Art and Coffee House. Caroline, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on the show. Australia is quite fascinating. So much um, produce and different produce is grown in different areas because the climate is so different. Um, You're heavily ensconced in the Swan Valley. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in the Swan Valley um, with a big family and it's a very warm climate. So obviously there's, there's lots of grapes growing there. Um, but there's a huge multicultural um, background uh, that sort of settled in the valley, which is quite an interesting story. Um, Originally, soldiers were given plots of land there and um, they tried to make it work, but they were English soldiers and they didn't know anything about farming. So (laughs) the Croatians came, they'd finished in the gold rush in Kalgoorlie and they came across and they're like, well, we're really happy to take this land and we're going to plant what we grow, what we grew back in Croatia. And, um, yeah, they turned it into a food bowl um, of sorts. So it was, um, yeah, pretty amazing. It's not just Croatians. There are Italians there too and some other English families that were obviously better at um, <laughs> growing than the others. Um, so my parents bought a property there in 79 and they're very much were outliers. We weren't sort of considered locals because most people were third generation um, families and um, we only had a small plot of land, so four and a half acres. And my dad was a scrap dealer, so we didn't really grow stuff on there like other people did, but we certainly grew up around strawberry farmers, pig, piggeries, um, a lot of chicken, um, chicken coops there. So it was sort of more intense farming than what you'd see out in on the station lands and the um, and you know Dandarigan sort of a couple of hours out of Perth. But it was a very rural upbringing, that is for sure. Um, <laughs> we used to have chickens. That my mum, my mum's mum, grew up in the Depression era, so. My mum didn't believe in takeaway food, which meant that we had to kill the chickens <laughs> that we were able <laughs> And my dad would get a killer from from up north, um, like a killer like a, a sheep or a, a cow or a pig, and we had to sort of watch that get broken down or sometimes even watch it get shot. Um, or rabbits, you know, we'd, we'd shoot rabbits and then it'd get skinned in front of you and... So, yeah, we had a fairly um, intense relationship with where our food came from, 
which I'm very grateful for as an adult, especially in these these times. <laughs> Do you have any um, feasts or sort of dishes or sort of family meals that you remember from when you were young that you can tell us about? Yeah, mum was obsessed with corned beef. We had a, um, a copper boiler in in our backyard so um it seemed to be and it still is her favorite meal so she would uh, would already be corned but we'd obviously boil it up in vegetables and a bit of red wine and garlic and cloves and then she'd make this mustard sauce and serve it with boiled potatoes and some sort of other overly boiled green, maybe Brussels sprouts. <laughs> she was always really nervous about undercooking meat, so therefore she completely overcooked it. Um, but, um, and then there, there was, you know, a lot of work to be done, but break time meant everybody sat down at the table. We'd have this gorgeous um, silver side to make sandwiches out of and it was very important that we had that break in the middle of a, a, a big day of work because, you know, there was always a lot to do um, on our property. We were definitely working children. <laughs> it would be illegal these days. <laughs> but, yeah, and uh, another interesting, well, not interesting dish, but something that really sits with me and I, remember it um is the the self-sourcing puddings the the lemon delicious and the chocolate self-sourcing pudding um and it's amazing how comforting it is just even to remember those moments of cooking with mum in the kitchen um my cafe was actually our old family home so when I would cook in it I actually would have flashbacks of of when I was five and making puddings with mum. Um, so I was, I was very lucky to be able to have that um, into my 20s, just being in my house, cooking, having a cafe, having a busy cafe and um, providing that space for staff. And it was, it was a very special moment in time for me. Tell us how that all started, like the, to have the cafe in the house that you grew up in. Yeah, so... Mum um, was a teacher, but she became an artist. Um, I've shared four children. I've got three older brothers. And um, when she was an artist, she was obviously showing her works in other galleries, but there was always that, that big sort of third taken out of um, the price of their paintings. So we built another house at the back of the property and then turned our old house into a gallery in 1996 and then yeah which was great my brother made furniture and sold that through the gallery as well um one of my dad's scrap deals meant that we came into one of the largest amounts of secondhand jarrah in wa so we started making jarrah furniture um but we just wanted more people to come into the gallery so my brother started to build the kitchen and turn it into a commercial kitchen and we added on um, toilets and we just wanted, yeah, to increase visitation. So we started this cafe in 2005. Um, I was grooming polo ponies in England and around Australia at that time, so I had no real <laughs> relationship with um, with food. I, I cooked for myself, which was quite unusual, um, especially for a polo groom. Um 
<laughs> so I, I wasn't afraid of food, but it, it wasn't, I, I never thought I'd be in hospitality. Um, so when I came back, my brother, the manager he had in, in mind, she pulled out and I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. And so we opened, we had about two years of operation. I had chefs come and work for me. Um, and, you know, you can imagine a female boss at 20. Um, it's not an easy, not an easy life. Um, but we just couldn't get a chef to cook to the ethos that we had as a family. It, it wasn't necessarily an official ethos that we had, but it was food, good food was just a part of our life. It wasn't questioned. We didn't really talk about it too much. It's just that that was it. Um, so... We, we probably went through about four chefs and I asked my mentor at the time, Kate Lamont, who is a restaurateur over here, She's um, and she said, well, just, Carolyn, get in the kitchen. She's a very matter-of-fact person. Just get in the kitchen, learn how to do it, and even if you don't stay in the kitchen, um, you won't be over a barrel. You'll, you'll know what you are asking for and you'll have a, you know, a better understanding of your business. And so she let me work in her kitchen down south in Yelling Up and oh, for about a month. But it was a really amazing, life-changing experience. I worked with a bunch of um, her chefs who were all exceptional, really cared about the food. I always remember looking at these big Brutus men. You know, they were, they were surfers. They were, I don't want to say bogan, but they were pretty rough. But, but the the care and attention and the and the fairy fingers that they used to have when it came to food was um, quite exceptional to watch. Uh, so I went back from that little visit and started running the kitchen. You know, I was doing braised duck. I was doing I fillet. I was making jus. I'd be out partying until 4 a.m. because I was 22 and I'd jump back into the kitchen at 4 a.m. to make sure that the the jus needed skimming or something needed checking on because it was brazing overnight. And um, I just was really honest with the the customers. I said, I'm learning. Just give me feedback, please. I just want to learn. And it was really popular. We just started popping off after that. I was filling the plates way too much, <laughs> so it was no doubt that we were popular, but people responded to the generosity. And at that time, there were no cafes in the valley. There was um, a f- quite a few restaurants, maybe 10 restaurants, but there just wasn't a place, a meeting place in the valley. So that became the community hub for the region, and it was a real um, institution, and it still is. We've sold it recently to some staff members, but... It's um it's a real institution for a lot of people. It means a lot. We watch kids grow up and um there, and it's a very special moment um in time for me to re- to reflect on for sure. You've done so many things in your career to date, but what's been the real sort of um, uh, influential or important moments sort of following that experience that you had? Um, I would always uh, volunteer to do cooking events, so like gourmet escape. Um, for free usually because it was my time to learn. You know, I'd, I'd be exposed to Heston Blumenthal's team that were coming down or um, St. Um, St. Barnes, oh, I'm not saying his name right, Sat Bain, sorry, um, George Columbaris's crew and, and George, um, 
uh, so that was my opportunity to expose myself to um, different styles of cooking and techniques um, and then just the electricity of an event, of a food event or a music event, those sorts of things were really thrilling to me and they just gave a little relief to the monotony of kitchen life because as much as we all love it, it can become really day in, day out and it can really break you down after a while. So when you're able to, I would take all my staff to these events um, and that would give them something to look forward to and build them up. And because, you know, hospitality is a, it's a trade and there's not always a lot of big payoff for people to be in it. Um, so any opportunity I had to give them some exposure and some excitement um, really is the, the highlight for my um, for my career. I think probably if I was to pinpoint it, I was pretty excited to cook in Singapore, um, representing Swan Valley and Parliament House um, in Canberra, uh, representing the Swan Valley there. I, pr- I did disgrace myself in Parliament House, though. <laughs> Thankfully, there are only a couple of... <laughs> I'll probably... Um, I'll live to regret this, but I <laughs> was just having such a great time and we were drinking with the the city of Swan, which is the Shire here, um, and it was just one wine after another, and I had to go on radio the next morning, and I couldn't even speak. I was absolutely gone. Then uh, <laughs> we went into the kitchen at Parliament House, and um, unfortunately, I just couldn't operate until eventually I had to re- <laughs> vomit in the kitchen in Parliament House. Thankfully, there was only a couple of witnesses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, it was perfect. I was on point. <laughs> I was out there. We fed 450 people, and um, it was it was magic. And we were, Anna Gare was there with us. She was emceeing, and um, yeah, it was a, a really those, those sorts of moments quite special. And you don't always. Um, yeah, you don't always get those opportunities, so you've just got to take them, even though it's hard to leave your business, even though it's hard and you're tired. And um, I just felt every time you push, it's hard in the moment, but you never regret it. Cooking at big events like that, sort of representing the Swan Valley, like Singapore or Canberra, um, tell us about those events. What, what do you cook? What sort of speaks of the region for you when you do those events? Um, always, for me, it's about representing the producer. So... A big part of why I sort of took took on that role of going on radio or, or representing a region is because um, it, it's a hard life. You know, as chefs it's hard, but as growers and producers it's even harder. Um, so, and a lot of them are not comfortable in front of the camera or on radio. So for me, I would always be trying to create recipes or promote growers in a way that made it accessible for people in the suburbs to access or think about um, buying those foods. So um, I might do a goat's curd where I'll show people how to make goat's curd out of the milk because maybe the producer doesn't have the correct license to make cheese. You know, there's there's always all these issues that get in the way of accessing really great quality food and that's where I, I tried to start um, 
uh, I suppose, educating people about how they can um, support small growers and um, have good quality food in their household. It doesn't have to be everything, but just just um, setting those relationships up so that people didn't lose hope because once a grower loses hope, we start getting minimised on on what sort of food we're going to have in our homes. Everything gets homogenised and um, we just lose those, you know, those heirloom um, varietals or we lose that that skill that maybe we used to have um, because it's just become more convenient to to do that. I mean, even my mum's buying chickens now. She would never do that in the past. Um, so, yeah, so the, the type of food... Um, uh, uh, so one of the dishes I think I did in in Singapore was maybe um, a, a, like a burnt fig or a caramelised fig um, bruschetta because you know every my food is quite rustic. It's very different to my partner's food, <laughs> which is very uptight. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so yeah, I would have done like a a, a pancetta, goat's curd, and caramelised fig bruschetta because this is you know nine years ago. I know that doesn't sound so exciting to people now, but it, the flavours were amazing. And when figs are in season, you know you, you just can't beat them, and there's not much that you need to do to them um, in order to enjoy them. Um, trying to think uh, of another dish that I would do. But for me, it's a lot about the brief and about the relationships that we can build. I think trying to be tricky and overly complicated um, doesn't really sit well with me. I I think there's a place for it and it it keeps people creative. But uh, for me, it is more about how do we keep these growers happening how do we keep them in our lives and how do we make sure that there's good quality food for the future um then that we don't lose that you've been the the voice on radio uh, in regards to food and also a presenter on television really championing um farmers and producers um do you have any stories of the connections you've made there and stories of sort of a farmer that you've come across that have really struck you yeah, um, Dandarigan organic beef is a lovely, a lovely story. So um, my dad's father was the butcher in Mora, Dandarigan and Mora are about an hour, two hours north of of Perth. And um, back in the sixties, so we're, we're very close with this family. I grew up with them. We would go on holidays with them. And in the sixties, I think, um, or it might have been the seventies, they decided to go organic, which was really against the grain um, for for old school um, farming. Uh, they seeded natural perennial grasses. Um, they did everything. And, and you know, to, it's a great effort to go organic when you're farming. Um, and it's really paying off for them now. And it's it's been a, a really um, lovely uh, journey for me to be able to create recipes for them and promote them uh, wherever I can because it, to see it, when you see perennials in the middle of summer and there's all this green grass available for the animals um, and you know that that grass is there, the root system's in there, it's deep, the soils are healthy um, and you can look at their neighbouring property and the soils are completely pillaged 
they're a different colour. Um, you can see the difference between um, organic farming and um, and you know traditional farming. And and I'm not I'm not unrealistic. We need both. We can't we can't feed a world without both. Um, but again, it's just it's lovely that that we still have that choice to make. That we we still have. Um, um, both options, but yeah, to see. I think I visited there in March, which would have to be the driest time in that in that particular region. And there's these tufts, big tufts of of um, green perennial grasses um, for the cattle to keep enjoying, and it, it just comes through in the meat. So um, it's it's again, it's easy to cook with uh, the flavors, the fats all the way through the muscle. It's nice and yellow fat. It's all those. Um, Omega threes instead of the omega sixes. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I get really excited about food is is knowing that it's come from um, knowing that it's had a good life. It's always difficult. It's always a difficult conversation to have with say vegetarians or vegans about how can you still eat meat. But I, I do think that the the life that the animals had is is the most important thing. Um, and we do, again, have to be realistic that we're not all going to be vegetarians and vegans, um, but we can be uh, thoughtful farmers and we can support thoughtful farming. Uh, one of the uh, big parts of your career is sort of creating healthier menu choices. Tell us a bit about the work that you did with the Prenderville Hotel Group. Yeah, in so I, I used to groom polo ponies for the Prendervilles when I was 17. Um, that's how long I've known them for. <laughs> And um, then when I was 26, I needed a break from the cafe. So I worked on their boat um, going up the coast, the West Australian coast, all the way up to Darwin and cooked for them. It was amazing, amazing. Like I, I, it was life-changing for me. It actually, when I came back, I was, I was ready to go f- at the cafe for another three years after that. It was just um, very um, fulfilling. Anyway, so when I was 31... I decided that I I was sick of having the same fights with my brother. We'd worked together for 11 years. Um, a cafe doesn't necessarily support two families and I just realised that I was done. I just had to have a change. So um, I went to – it was hard. It was a very hard decision to make, um, obviously, and, and I was very much alone after that. Um, and I went to Peter Prendival and I said, have you got a job for me? Like, is there something I can do? Presenting, I can cook, I can, um, but I'm, I'm really hoping to do some sort of, um, event style thing. So he said, could you go up to Broome and, um, put on a, a dinner on the, at the Mangrove Hotel, they just bought the Mangrove Hotel and done huge renovations to it, um. We want to really showcase local seafood because they'd been lobbying to uh, change the laws around accessing seafood, which is just a joke because all of our seafood from from the north end gets sent down to Perth to get processed and then sent back up, um, which has got to be the most ridiculous thing in the world. So (laughs) they'd been lobbying hard um, to change that. So they wanted to do an event to, to, you know, show that off. Um, So... When I had a meeting with the the next in charge, Tony DeCiera, he he was like, "While you're up there, would you mind having a chat with the chef? He's a really good guy, but he's just lacking a bit of creativity, and I'd just be great if you could help him." 
So, um, and also while I was sitting there at the desk, this is so funny and how I know I've turned into my father. Um, he goes, and Caroline, um, is there any chance that you could get a hold of 12 head of cattle? <laughs> well, this has got to be the most ridiculous question I've ever been asked, but actually, yes, I probably can <laughs> when you want them delivered. Um, anyway, so I went up to Broome and um, met with a chef and sort of realised that there was maybe a few cultural issues there and he wasn't necessarily being advocated for um, and I think he felt a bit sort of backed into a corner. And that's sort of where my consulting work started. Um, I, I was able to act a, as a voice to him. We were able to change the menu and, and incorporate um, some more female-friendly um, items onto the onto the menu. And um, normally uh, a chef in, in the um, Kimberley would probably last six months to a year. Um, now that same chef is, has been in that role for coming on six years. So um, I realised that there was a there was a space for me in the consulting in the consulting you know uh, industry to be a female. You know, be a female, be able to come in and be a bit more sensitive than say a, a male consultant. Um, who would maybe throw down some recipes, tell people what to do and and not necessarily address um, some of the inner workings of of what was happening. Um, So from there I went on – we did that dinner, by the way, and it was fabulous. Uh, (laughs) I went on to help at Hotel Rotnest, um, Trade Winds and Fremantle, Caratha um, International Hotel – and then I did a bunch of consulting um, for some smaller independent um, cafes. So just sort of teaching them how to run their business. A lot of people tend to buy cafes without knowing the industry or knowing anything really at all, um, thinking it's a, it's a good idea and, and good on them. We wouldn't have any cafes if people didn't do that. Uh, but yeah, I just basically show people how to do do the job um, with the experience that I had. Uh, I'd, sometimes I'd have to teach, um, especially in the remote areas, I'd have to teach chef the parties how to be exec chefs and very quickly. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> um, so there's lots of of basically just making it happen okay, you need this, all right, let's make it happen. And um, because of my background of, of running my own business for at that stage, it was 11 years, um, I had the ability to do that. Um, or maybe ignorance is bliss, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was a very rewarding um, uh, situation. It was pretty hardcore at times. Um, it's not easy uh, turning gold in, out of, you know, spinning gold out of nothing. Um, and when I got pregnant, I was probably quite relieved to not be doing that anymore because it was it was quite yeah draining. Uh. <laughs> you, you mentioned the multicultural nature of the the Swan Valley. Are you also involved in sort of native ingredients and the native food of the region? Yeah, definitely. So, um, Arnie Tal- Dale Tilbrook. Um, certainly has been the champion for Indigenous food uh, for the Swan Valley and for WA. Uh, When 
I'd met my partner, Rowan, who was working for Fervor at the time. Um, I, I was probably exposed to Indigenous food, but it wasn't necessarily uh, a huge factor. I was probably playing around with wattle seed and maybe some lemon myrtle. Um, we we would have had teas at the cafe and, yeah, certainly not to the extent that I am now that I'm, I'm with Rowan. Um, but it is exciting to play with those flavours. It is like nothing else. And it is like unlocking a, a little secret because when when you look at it, you, you've got no idea that you're going to get the flavour that you get. Uh, lemon myrtle, I know it's a, a fairly normal one, but far out, the, the flavour that you get out of that is insane. And I didn't realise, but my mum had a 20-year-old tree in her garden I remember taking Rowan to the house and mum's like, yeah, I've got lemon myrtle. And Rowan can be very dismissive and he's like, yeah, sure you do. No one has lemon myrtle. They've all got they've all got the strike or they've all got some sort of sickness. And my mum's like, no, I actually have one. And then I think that's actually why he's still with me is just to access that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beast. <laughs> You grew up in the Swan Valley. How much has it changed uh, in your life in regards to, to food? It's huge. So um, when Kate Lamont was setting up Lamont's, it was probably one of the only restaurants that were around. Um, then more restaurants came and we were getting more into table wines, more further away from the the fortifieds and the sticky wines, and and we were growing up a bit. The, the valley had this um, terrible reputation um, for food and f- mainly for wine. Um, so I think in the sort of 90s we were attracting more um, serious winemakers or more ta- table wine-focused um, winemakers, and then the food followed suit. So we still are very much a an accessible wine region. Um, so you go there for platters and you go there for um, grazing-style food. But there's definitely uh, an upswell of, of interesting chefs um, being attracted to the region. So it's nice to see the, the renaissance um, period in the valley. It, it's always been lovely, but it's just not necessarily been um, what's the word? A destination for restaurants. But everybody is pickling, everybody's growing something. I think the other issue that we've always found in the valley is not a lot of it's done commercially. So there'll be someone that's making sausages, but they're just making it for their family and friends. There'll be someone making olive oil. And um, we've never been able to sell it. And and I was on the Tourism Council for about oh, probably 10 years, um, which, again, uh, is why I became such a promoter for the region is we just needed it. But, yeah, it was hard to sell. Um, it was hard to package things up and maybe sell it to the international audience because, You'd have to go and knock on Nonna's door, ask her, explain who you are, ask her that you'd like some olive oil. And it was just, so it was just always, um, uh, yeah, a a difficult sort of, um, uh, yeah, package to sell. But 
I think what we've decided is the region's just nice to be in. In the 80s, it was um, it was due to be subdivided and turned into a suburb. And my mum and Kate Lamont and a few other people uh, formed a group and actually stopped that from going ahead. So we wouldn't have that space um, to enjoy if, if it wasn't for them. And the region is is very special for um, for that connection to the land. There there are people that are working their land still. There are people that have groves, olive groves, and they have piggeries and and chickens. And um, so I think even just driving through it is a, is a nice experience. Um, and I'm so glad that we'll, it's still there for us. You've got a, a really unique uh, role celebrating the region that you grew up in. What, what do you love about what you do? Um, I would have to say that it's it's just a joy to have the trust of of representing people and representing what they do. I don't take it lightly and... Um, yeah, it, it is an absolute joy to do. I love cooking. I love showing people, especially the young people, how to how to manage food and and the the way that it changes themselves. So often I'll cook with young people who are pretty disengaged and disinterested. And after you've shown them how to cook something, they they've changed their whole tune, their whole attitude on life. Um, they get impassioned. They they get excited. So I think that's probably my favourite thing um, to just see that change in the people that you're, you're showing produce to because you can get a bit you, – when you're talking to farmers, they don't really – they do care still, but they're so used to seeing it that they don't really see it as, as special or important anymore. But the end user still does, and that's probably um, the, the real joy that I get out of it is, is just showing them what's available to them. Um, and to really take, um, yeah, make the most of it. Well, Caroline, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today just to hear a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Huck. <laughs> See you soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.